This is a podcast about Marquis Smith. My name is Rick Carr, and for the past 30 years or so, I've been what you might call an ardent fan of the work of Mark Edward Smith and the band he founded, The Fall. But Marquis Smith's cultural legacy extends beyond the output of a band that never actually sold that many records. That is what this podcast is about. What Marquis Smith's work meant to a philosopher, a professional athlete, a literary critic, an artist, and the lessons those people and others think we all might be able to learn from it. In this episode, I'm talking to essayist and critic Toby Hazlitt, who writes for The New Yorker, N Plus One, and Art Forum. I started our conversation by playing him this little snippet from the last episode. Turner Prize-winning artist Mark Leckie was talking about how the Northern English working class that produced Marquis e. Smith, and Leckie himself, thought about language. You know, language isn't for you, right? If you're working class, maybe if you're, I don't know, but if you're working class, language isn't yours, right? Language is something that's spoken about by people who are well-educated and the rest of it. You know, he made language his. And I think that's very appealing to anyone who feels like they haven't really got a voice in the world, you know? Toby Hazlitt thinks that is spot on. It triggered a Marcel Proust moment. I always associated Marky Smith with this scene in Swan's Way where the narrator's maid says the word X-ray to her mistress and she says it with a bit of irony or self-effacement as if it's absurd that she even knows the word at all and something that i always found so present and aggressive in marky smith's work was the idea that he was a working class boy who preposterously knew the word parallax and knew the word pontifex and so his songs are just dotted with these valiant vindictive assertions of erudition in spite of the fact that he had no business talking like he was from a class that he wasn't. So I've, I've, always, I've always sensed the very productive class resentment as shaping the way that he expressed himself. That he was using the kind of expressive norms of a class above him to represent people who weren't represented or were unrepresentable. And I think that's also probably why he ended up drawing so heavily upon gothic and weird and uh in some like just macabre grotesque imagery is that it telegraphed his literary inclinations but it made it very clear that his literariness had everything to do with exploring the furthest possible edges of human expression often that means smith is hurling a barrage of words at you like the fine print towards the end of a pharmaceutical ad his lyrics veer from fury to obscurity to hilarity this is from a 1982 song called The Classical. You won't find anything more ridiculous than this new profile razor unit made with the highest British attention to the wrong detail in her obsolete units surrounded by hail. The Classical! 
I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that line besides the fact that I love it. But it, it ends with a kind of punchline, but the entire thing snaps so perfectly into this satire of highly commodified language. I think a lot of his language doesn't parrot, but sometimes satirizes the language of advertising or of a kind of compulsive optimism that was totally anathema to his sensibility, but lines like, I've never felt better in my life in the classical. I mean, how do you read that? Is that just an expression of joy bursting out from the middle of an incredibly strange song lyrically? Is that ironic? One's tempted to read it as both. I'm just like, do, in what world could somebody from Marky e. Smith's sociological environment actually say, I've never felt better in my life? Like, it really, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it invites questions as to what the nature of that life is. Bleak is the word for Manchester in the late 70s when Marky e. Smith and his bandmates recorded the first few Fall albums. Unemployment, urban blight, football hooliganism, the rise of Thatcherism. Toby Hazlitt says Smith approached issues like that obliquely. Marky e. Smith says, I don't want to write about unemployment. It's not that it's trivial, it's just too easy to write about. And yet you have a line from Ludgang the line, carve a hole in the rain for ya, carve a hole in the rain for ya. I love that because the song is so clearly about unemployment. I mean, it's called Lud Gang, it's reference to Ned Ludd, the original Luddite who broke machines in protest against the marginalization of labor. And Marky e. Smith is writing this at the advent of Thatcherism when people are actually suffering huge unemployment crises, when uh, the West is being deindustrialized rather violently. And he's talking about a situation in which the political superstructure is deciding how people live their lives on a day-to-day -day basis in such a brutal way that it almost seems completely overwhelming and that something as simple and brutish and vulgar and valiant as breaking a machine is tantamount to carving a hole in the rain. I mean, this is the new technocratic reality. Individual acts of desperation or sabotage or heroism <laughs> add up to nothing more, and it, I still really do sense the romantic kernel in trying to carve a hole in the rain as a metaphor or an allegory for, you know, the assertion of the individual will against ridiculous circumstances. You have argued before uh, that that we should sort of see Marky e. Smith as 
is a contemporary James Joyce. Uh, what do you mean by that? So not so much a contemporary as an heir. I mean, I think that they're analogous figures. I find that a lot of the language play and the highly ambivalent relationship to the language of political militancy and the feeling of political emergency is reflected in the Falls lyrics. Um, he's unquestionably a modernist of some sort. I think that the angularity of his vision and in some ways the brutality of his aesthetic sensibility just speaks to a general modernist sensibility. Joyce in particular, especially in the parts of Ulysses where he is ventriloquizing Irish nationalism or he's uh, charting the development of the English language and playing with syntax and insisting on assonance, consonance, alliteration. I see a lot of that in how Marky Smith writes lyrics, and I think that there's a relation in Joyce and in Smith between play and language and the question of political representation. I think that Joyce's ironic but ultimately touching relationship to the quandaries of Irish nationalism are equivalent to Marky Smith's relationship to the British left. I mean, I, I think it comes down to the way that both writers relish the play of consonants and ironically appropriate the pomp and circumstance of official speech. Uh, a line from Joyce, which I love so much, it's a kind of chapter heading within a larger episode. And uh, Joyce says, Sophist wallops haughty Helen Square on proboscis, Spartans gnash molars. And Marky Smith's line in A New Face in Hell is, wireless enthusiast intercepts government secret radio band and uncovers secrets and scandals of deceitful type proportions. Wireless enthusiast intercepts government secret radio band and uncovers secrets and scandals of deceitful type proportions. I mean, clearly there is an overemphasis on the Latinate and the uh, syntactically complex to the point where you barely understand what's actually being said, but you definitely have a sense of where the speech is coming from. The irony in the case of both Joyce and Marky Smith is that they don't identify really with that kind of speech. Marky Smith doesn't identify with pompous political rhetoric or with the language of the commodity, and yet he appropriates it because he understands that it's part of the collective experience of contemporary consciousness. I think that's very similar to what George is trying to get at with his portrait of Dublin. I think that Manchester is Smith's Dublin. Mm. The, 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 it sounds like it would be safe to put that another way, maybe say that the, the form of language there is conveying more more of the information than the actual language itself. That, that we have this sort of sense as listeners when we hear it or when we read it of this 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 formal pattern that's in there and that in a way overwhelms the meaning of the words themselves. Yeah, and it always it always threatens to overwhelm the meaning of the words themselves. Whether or not it actually achieves that, I think is debatable. I think the point is that we are kept in a permanent excruciating tension between the propulsive force of the language and the sound of the language, and then the meanings which may or may not be immediately apparent to us, but always tease us with the possibility of decoding them. I mean, in New Face in Hell, he's telling a story. A prickly line of sweat 
Cover's enthusiast forehead as the realization hits him that the same government him and his now dead neighbor voted for and backed and talked of on cream potchers have tricked him into their war against the people who enthusiast and dead monster would wish torture on. A servant of government walks in and arrests Wireless Fan in kitchen for murder of his neighbor. The story hangs together, it ends up becoming kind of absurd, and the profusion of verbiage only helps to obscure what the main lines of the plot are. But I think that there, Marky Smith is always toggling between giving us everything and revealing things in this grand parade of words and poking fun of precisely that parade. Smith is, you think of a lot of the other bands that did come up at the same time with the fall. Mm -hmm. um, there is a very strong, explicitly political strain in a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, or, or just outright sort of nihilistic in, in you know, the sense of the Sex Pistols, the Clash were certainly mm -hmm. political. And he, 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 you're right, I never really thought about the fact that he's like, is that him sort of deliberately standing aside and sort of ceding that ground to his peers? Or does he, he just doesn't believe that that kind of rhetoric, like the Clash's rhetoric, is actually going to be effective? Do you have a, can you get a sense of that? Where his distance comes from? Why he doesn't go direct? I mean, there's no call for action anywhere in a fall song that I can think of. Except for nihilistic calls for action. Leave the capital. Exit this Roman shell. <laughs> Toby Hazlitt doesn't fit the description of the typical fall fan that I used in the last episode. White, male, middle-aged, middle-class. He's younger and he's black. He says when he was growing up in suburban Indianapolis, one of the things that attracted him to the fall was Smith's absolute refusal to give a damn about what anybody else thought of him. To an adolescent, to find out that there was someone somewhere who managed to never stop being an adolescent is a kind of utopian dream um, that his sensibility has never had to change. Then Hazlitt fell in love with modernist literature, and his appreciation for Smith grew even deeper, despite the fact that Smith wasn't always exactly woke. For instance, he started the song we discussed earlier, the classical, by barking the N-word. He probably derived a bit of perverse, but also just childish pleasure in dislodging a word from its context. I mean, it's unclear what the N-word is doing in the classical. Do I feel a little bit of guilt listening to the song? Do I flinch? Yes, and I suppose I always will. Um, but what the songs are expressing is a society created within contemptuous conditions. And I can't deny the brute force of that contempt as it's expressed in the songs and these occasional outbursts of injurious language. They seem to slot into that sensibility. And yet he's not actually producing anti black or anti-gay screeds. I think it's significant that Lana Pillay, 
who was then a drag queen and now is a, a black trans activist, was a friend of his, appeared in fall videos. And Marky Smith obviously hung out with Lee Bowery and Michael Clark. Lee Bowery was a queer performance artist and fashion designer who died of an AIDS-related illness in 1994. And Michael Clark is a gay Scottish choreographer and dancer whose company is based in London's Barbican Center. You could not say this about, I don't think, New Order, Joy Division, or even really Morrissey. That I think that the... Maybe most particularly Morrissey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I guess I, I, I guess the obviously Morrissey's relationship to race is so vexed, but in terms of hanging out with drag queens and Michael Clark, I, I perhaps there's an archive there that I haven't investigated. But somebody who's so obsessed with the aggression inherent in a society divided by class, there was a certain point at which you could see, I mean, for lack of a better term, <laughs> a kind of rainbow alliance between the outcasts of society, and that I think was the value of his resort to the gothic or the weird or the macabre people who are excluded on the basis of their class position their race their sexuality these are all grotesques it's not simply that they have a different role in society that is well organized but they're pushed to the fringes so brutally that you develop a certain angular sensibility related to where exactly your place so i i don't know i i i obviously am kind of trying to talk my way through it because I don't have a good answer. But I do think it's relevant that Smith, for all of the bad press that he gets for that, and I think the press, the bad press is deserved. I'm not trying to apologize for him. I do think it's interesting that it sits alongside a real devotion to people who, especially in Saturite Britain, were getting a very poor shake. Yet Marky Smith pretty clearly could be a monster in his private life. He spent decades drinking heavily and pounding his brain with drugs. He had a violent temper. He repeatedly assaulted people, including members of the fall. One of them was his girlfriend. Toby Hazlitt says Smith's behavior complicates coming to terms with his legacy. It's obviously something I've been thinking about. Um, I don't have an answer to this question generally. I, obviously, the most salient, relevant comparison would be to Woody Allen. Not that his sensibility re resembles Marky Smith at all, but different critics adopting different positions vis-a-vis -vis the Allen legacy. For a lot of people, Allen, like Smith, is just an ingrained part of their sensibility and their understanding of aesthetics. Uh, to blot him out by means of a boycott on his works or studious de-romanticization <laughs> regarding his public image would be blotting out a really significant part of aesthetic history. Does that matter? Is accrediting too much power in the to the author in the first place uh, an intellectual lapse? I can't say. The cynic in me, or rather my first incorrect thought that is in need of disciplining and refinement is that of course it all hangs together so perfectly as does the racism with smith's notion of himself and his projected image of an unreformed working class lout that there is something about the delicacy uh this moment in culture that was always anathema to how he thought about things I obviously don't relish that particular kind of loudishness, but I guess I'm fighting in my head with fall fans who are ready to give him a pass for bad behavior because it 
fitted in so marvelously with their image of him as a kind of, uh, I mean, he was an image of masculine vulnerability and contemptuous weakness. I mean, the expressions of helplessness in his songs happened to map on quite neatly to uh, repressive, abusive, and obviously pathetic masculine, hyper-masculine, although not especially macho behavior. As to what the culture is to do with him now, I think it's to write about him in a clear-eyed way that appreciates what is there to appreciate, and I think that includes very, very much. Um, And yet, censures or criticizes or examines what ought to be examined. Um, I'm working on a piece about him. I fully intend to mention the fact, and not in a glorifying, chummy way, that he was, as you say, a monster. If we're going to insist on context, then let's have real context in which everything that we know about this person is brought to the fore, and we force ourselves to make connections between the things we like and the things that we don't like. I think that, that as a first step, as a culture, that seems like a perfectly adequate one. Toby, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to me. This has been really fantastic. Thank you. Oh. A ton of thanks to Toby Hazlitt for taking time out to talk to me. Thanks also to Diantha Parker and Birgit Rathsman. If you want to get in touch, email me. The address is a podcast about MES, a podcast about MES, all one word, at gmail.com. On the next episode, I'll be talking about Marky Smith and soccer with a fall fan and former professional footballer for Chelsea, Everton, and Scotland's national team. Pat Nevin is on the next episode of a podcast about Marky Smith. My name's Rick Carr. Thanks for listening. My lungs crusted in blood, but the flex is now cut clear. I'm a bit of luck and beer. Took me ten years to write this song, but I'm a bit of luck and beer.